So, our second of the pseudo-Pixar stuff. <laughs> Obviously, this is not Pixar, this is Disney. Uh, one of these days, it'd be nice to actually cover most of the CGI stuff in this era. You know, the, the, the so-called Pixar renaissance. But anyways, <clears throat> this, this is a weird film to talk about historically. <sighs> Disney's come out with a couple of films that launched what are usually referred to as Golden Ages. Uh, you, of course, have heard of the Disney Renaissance, which I did a full coverage of last year. But we've also got the Snow White era, the Cinderella era, the Little Mermaid era, and the Tangled era, which, as of recording, we are still currently in. The trend is pretty formulaic. Film comes out, turns out to be a box office smash. We have several films that are really good, and then at a certain point the quality noticeably dips off a bit. And then we go back into a slump until another film comes along and smashes it out. Like I said, we've had four of those so far. Snow White, Cinderella, Little Mermaid, and Tangled. This is all with the Disney stuff, obviously. I don't know. I mentioned Pixar earlier because of reasons that are probably self-apparent. But no, this is one of the Disney flicks. This, uh... What's interesting is Princess and the Frog really did badly. Financially. But it was a good film. I mean, I'm biased because of, you know, the villain. But the point remains that it was decent and it actually, uh, critically, was fairly well acclaimed. Just didn't sell all that well. This is because Disney really uh, wants what they call the four-quadrant thing. I've actually talked about this a couple of times before, but it hasn't come up that much. There's roughly four quadrants when it comes to audience when it comes to who your audience is, and how many how many of the four quadrants that your particular work appeals to is something that goes into calculations and budgets and financial figures and all sorts of really boring money stuff like that. Disney wants their big picks, you know, like this one, to be four quadrant. They want to appeal to all four. And they do when they manage it. And when they don't, well, we have Princess and the Frog. Regardless of the quality of the film, it simply didn't appeal to the large enough market in order to make the kind of money that they were demanding. There could be considered to be other reasons for that, and there's obvious real-life historical problems coming along, too. But the fact remains. Just to give you an idea, by the way, this film made $332 million net. As I've been reporting this whole time, I don't cover gross, because who gives a damn about gross? I care about net, how much the film actually made. And, yeah, this film made a lot of freaking money. Although, funnily enough, uh, there's another film I was looking at for a related uh, rumination this year, which made something like $100 million net, and was considered a box office bomb, so much so that they actually canceled the third film of the franchise, because it only made $100 million net. Anyways. The last... This is the last... Uh, so... We have our first CGI princess, and Rapunzel herself was actually intended to be the last princess. I just realized I don't have one of my lights on. Holy crap. Professional! Um, was intended to be the last princess added to the Disney Princess catalog. Time has since proven that to be wrong. Twice. But it's just interesting to think about at the time, because a lot of people were walking into this with, okay, we're going to make this really work. And it shows, because this film took six years to make. They had to basically reinvent a lot of the tech that Pixar was already kind of working with. I talked about that uh, two weeks ago, but that was several years before this one. They were trying to, the biggest thing was, of course, the hair, but they had to invent 
all kinds of things. And by the way, this film cost $260 million to make. That's their budget. And if that doesn't sound like a lot of frickin' money, I want to point out that it's one of the most expensive animated films ever. <laughs> but a lot of that was in development. A lot of that was in getting the tools and getting the tech and the fact that they were making this film for six years. Because they really wanted to push into the CGI-verse, and with good reason. Uh, don't mistake me. You know, hand-drawn is its own thing, and animated is its own thing, and there's nothing wrong with either of those. But... The 3D-verse has basically been expanding as far as the new animated for visual media ever since Toy Story. That was in the 90s. So, actually sitting down and, and pushing for this was the smart move. It was the long-term investment, which is actually pretty rare for Disney to do. And funnily enough, they did that with another film I covered last year. Little Mermaid. Huh. Anyways, with the desire to really throw themselves into it and actually invest themselves in it, they invented a lot of tools and kit and tech and style, and, and they basically they refined the process to the point where I couldn't talk properly, and they were able to make far more films like this, including, of course, Frozen, but also Zootopia. By the way, Frozen was also in development during the development of this film. In fact, Frozen was going to be canceled... Except then this film did really, really, really well. You know, I mentioned that budget. Uh, yeah, that, that's why that 332 million net is so impressive because it made tons of money over and above. It's how much it cost to make. So, woo. Hair was a big deal. They came up with this thing, uh, they call multi-rigging. So obviously all the cameras are digital, but what they wanted to do was have multiple shots of a given scene and then have them moving in different ways, like I'm kind of doing here. And then they would smash the scene on top of itself and give it this completely different aesthetic and style, which kind of contributes to why the backgrounds move in ways that don't necessarily make sense logically, but adds to the aesthetic of the work, since this is not trying to be realistic. It is trying to be stylized, and that... I mean, there's a very, very, very long historical precedent for things that try to go for style over... Um, let's, let's, let's phrase that differently. Things that try to go for a specific aesthetic style rather than high-fidelity style. And the aesthetic style stuff tends to last longer and be better received and generally age much, much better. So, <clears throat> lots of money, lots of effort. Ah, uh, that CGI thing. i got to mention a couple other things, though. Uh, <laughs> Mandy Moore. This, this, this film has a weird connection with a, a game series that I've done an entire lore run of once called Kingdom Hearts, which you may or may not be aware of. Mandy Moore actually played the voice of Eris over in Kingdom Hearts 1 and is probably, I'd say, the second best heiress voice actor we've ever had, actress, excuse me, that we've ever had after the woman who plays her in FF7R1. Now, you might think, oh, well, why, what does that have to do with this film? Well, I mean, obviously Mandy Moore plays Rapunzel here, but what's really interesting is that Rapunzel's world, that is to say, uh, the Kingdom of Corona, is actually in Kingdom Hearts 3, where Mandy Moore does not voice Rapunzel probably because she was too damned expensive. Mandy Moore is a fairly large-scale actress who can command a decent salary. But but here, this, this is where this gets funny. Zachary, Zachary Levi, who is awesome, uh, he's, he's the guy who voices Flynn, right? He 
always expressed an interest in getting involved in two separate projects, being in a Disney film and being in Kingdom Hearts. So, he's Flynn here, and he voices Flynn over in Kingdom Hearts, and does a great job of it, by the way. Kingdom of Crone is actually one of my favorite uh, worlds in the Kingdom Hearts 3, personally. <laughs> just just amusing how that kind of lines up. Oh yeah, by the way, Ron Perlman always wanted to be in a Disney flick as well, so it's another one off the bucket list. What's funny is, uh, I, know, I know that he played one of the Stabbington brothers, but I was trying to figure out, you know, which one, and... Who plays the other one? It turns out, well, he is credited for both. Only one of them ever actually speaks. Anyways. <clears throat> so, film proper. Now, this is this is a fairy tale. This is, it's, it's done on purpose. They want to have that whimsical, adventurous tone to it. I have a feeling that's part of why it was so financially successful, because four quadrants. But also, it's hard to analyze this film alongside something like, say, The Incredibles, like we just covered, or another film we'll be covering in a few weeks, because while there are obviously whimsical elements, and the whole thing is very adventurous, there's not a lot to stink my teeth into. Not really. Instead, it is a competent adventure film. That's that. It is. It's it's all about going out and excitement and ah, ooh, you know, it's got that tone to it, and it made me laugh more than I should probably admit to. I enjoyed the heck out of the film. Don't mistake me. But I bring this up because, unlike, say, The Incredibles, which had tons of concepts and ideas and things to just you know, really sink my teeth into, here I only had, like, two. So let's run through this. So first of all, this setting is astonishingly low magic. Yeah, I know, that's weird to say when there's a, a horse who can communicate just fine and a chameleon who can communicate just fine and there's hair that can heal people. But other than, really, other than the hair, the film is basically absent of magic. I think that was to the betterment of the film, though. Dragging it down to the ground floor, A, makes any iteration of magic, any iteration of magic, more special and unique by its own inclusion, and B, allows the stakes to feel a little bit more grounded as well. So we're a little bit more invested in things when being stuck underwater is suddenly a huge issue, for example. But we see the sun droplet leading down to the flower, which, I gotta be honest, I have no idea how that works. The sun was like, you know what, hang on, hang on. <laughs> and then, you know, this droplet comes here. It's probably not going at the speed of light, so it takes, you know, a few years. And then it reaches Earth, and then it comes down, and it doesn't destroy everything on its way. It just comes down and lands on a flower. Becomes a flower? Anyways, what's funny is, given the mythos approach here, it would if, if you want me to go ahead and dig into this, it would probably make a lot more sense if the sun actually had nothing to do with anything. Oh, sure, thematically, you know, bright, and, you know, they, they've got the sun as their sun. It's this kingdom of Corona, for God's sakes. But, oh, God, I just realized, I'm sorry. That's, <laughs> that just sort of clicked with me, because we're currently going through the coronavirus pandemic right now. Amusing timing. Anyways, um, you know, so it's probably just they found a magic flower. That still makes it magic. It's just... One of the other interesting things is the villain also has no magic to, to speak of. It could be argued since she knew the words to sing and she knew what to do with it. But while she is stylized as a classic witch, you know, straight out of the old fairy tales, 
and by the old fairy tales, I mean the reappropriated fairy tales, she doesn't demonstrate anything other than the fact that she's a person who has knowledge and experience from being alive for however many centuries. That's it. Huh. Anyways, so, she goes and builds a tower, right? No, actually, I have a theory that she didn't build that tower at all. She just found it and decided to reappropriate it for her own purposes. Sealed up the actual entryway so it looked like there wasn't one. Covered it with the foliage. She, she shows this off at one point. And then, you know, has Rapunzel in there and has the way to get in and out and blah, 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 blah. You, you get the general gist of how this could line up this way. You ever see uh, Highlander? The movie, preferably, but the show kind of works, too. The reason I bring it up, for those of you not familiar with the franchise, in Highlander, um, there's people and they live forever, and there's other things that don't matter for the sake of this conversation. So, they live forever, and there's sort of an unspoken automatic presumption that most Highlanders become very wealthy and very politically connected, or unless they decide to herm it up, they are affluent, right? Now, the reason for that is because they live forever. So, you know, you invest and you gain money, and over time you just automatically get richer, right? Obviously, it doesn't work that way. But I feel like the same general vibe is exactly what's being pushed here. That, well, Gothel is so old that she does have tons of money and tons of influence and tons of connections. We don't really see most of these because almost all the interactions we see with her are directly connected to Rapunzel, who is here. We also know that she leaves on a very regular basis, but she also comes back basically daily. So where she goes to and what she does would be related to that whole other lifestyle that she's probably living. Now, yes, I do know the cartoon show actually kind of goes into some of this. I'm avoiding that for obvious spoilery reasons. I just wanted to mention that I did come across it in my research. Either way, she... Uh... Well, this isn't quite to the level of Pinkie Pie, where the hair is effectively a, uh, you know, an, an additional arm that can be utilized. Rapunzel certainly seems to be able to do a whole lot of things with her hair. That's 11 pounds of hair right there. I don't know what that is in kilos, don't ask me. <laughs> and uh, that, that leads me to Gothel, who is voiced by Donna Murphy, who I'll always remember most from Star Trek, if I'm just being completely honest with myself here. She does a really good job with Gothel. And Gothel is probably one of the worst. Worst is the wrong word. Most evil Disney villains I have ever seen. She's unique because we've got this film which is all about whimsy and adventure and slapstick. And it's, it's this is a comedy. This is a comical film. It is designed to be humorous, and usually at least once per scene. But generally speaking, you can only skip over one scene before you get to another scene where there are then jokes again. Very few exceptions. In fact, I actually, now I'm thinking about it, I don't think there's a exception of that. Hang on, let me run through that last sequence in my head. Uh, yeah, no, that tracks. At most, there is one scene that is not humorous in some manner or another. So, <laughs> Gothel... Wow! I think it helps in this case. I think the contrast and the juxtaposition really helps to emphasize just how horrible she is. Contrast is very important when it comes to character design. Um, I have used Dragon Age Origins as an example of this many, 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 many times, but this is a different approach. Rather than having pure evil so that the other characters 
gradients can be seen different all along that backdrop. This is a backdrop of basically decent people. Even the Stabbington brothers are not that bad. They're not good, but they are ultimately thugs. Gothel is horrible. And the film goes out of its way to show that basically everyone else isn't. You'll notice that for all of the talk about how dangerous and horrible the world can be, and by God, that's good advice when it comes to real life, the fact is that is proven to be untrue, even when she goes to the, the duckling, and everyone's like, Rawr. no, they're, they're people too. And obviously comedy, comedy for comedy's sake. But you get, you get the idea. Nobody behaves in the manner she describes, with the possible exception of the Savingtons and herself. But none of this really talks about up the biggest reason why she's so damned evil. The same reason Dolores Umbridge is so damned evil. Who's worse? Real quick. Lord Voldemort or Dolores Umbridge? We actually talked about this during the rumination about that, which at this point was like two years ago. <laughs> uh, no, I guess it would have been a year ago from the way it was released. But the point is, I recorded that a year ago. But I recorded that two years ago from... Let's just move on. Who's worse? Now, I imagine I'd get a variety of responses there, and I don't expect you to actually say that in the comments, but I bring this up because when we actually did the video on that, Harry Potter 5, a lot of people agreed and were also along board with the idea that Umbridge is worse than Voldemort. Why? Because she's realistic evil. And that's just more insidious and more horrible and more unpleasant to behold than someone who's in the background going, and then I will build a weapon! <laughs> Versus the, I don't have a better word for it, the abuse that Gothel does. She, I know gaslighting is, is an overused term, and in fact it doesn't even have a codified definition, but I don't have a better word. She gaslights the hell out of Rapunzel in this film. She insists on things. She, God, it's just, it's like a text, but it's like someone actually sat down and did research on how actual abusive relationships are in real life and then said, okay, that's our villain. And that's horrible. And again, it shows just how much worse she is than everything else. Constantly belittling or mocking or putting you down. And then when called on it, oh, I'm just kidding. It's, you take things too seriously. I've actually been in a relationship like that before myself. This is a very long time ago at this point. My sister has said several times that she wishes I'd never met that woman because she has been spending years trying to undo the damage that did to my self-esteem. I don't think that's true. I think I've always been crap. But the fact of the matter is, I do still to this very day have that automatic... Uh, reaction of needing to defend basically everything I say. Sometimes I fight it successfully, sometimes I don't. Because I was with that woman for, like, two years. And, I mean, that may not sound like a long time, but I want you to picture that daily. I can say this now with the advantage of distance and hindsight, but at the at time, I mean, she was right, you know? I, I really am that ugly, and I really am that stupid and failure and worthless and... I'm sorry, I don't know what I was thinking. And then you just kind of, after a while, you learn to just keep your mouth shut. Because everything you say is wrong. I bet a lot of you actually know what I, I mean by that, and that sucks. I hope, I hope none of you do. I hope none of you have ever experienced that. It's really horrible, and that's the point. 
That's why Gothel is so horrible. Now, I'm speaking of a romantic relationship, of course, but it doesn't have to be. The, the specific romantic, excuse me, the specific relation connection doesn't matter. You, this could be from a parent to a child, from a sibling to another scene, from a friend to another friend, from a boss to a coworker, or excuse me, to an employee, from a coworker to another coworker. It doesn't matter because the rules are basically identical. At least when it comes to this kind of abuse. What's really funny is she gives this big argument about how you shouldn't go out and about. I looked up uh, the most common forms of flawed arguments, the fallacies of arguing. I couldn't quite nail down which exact fallacy this was because she actually bounces through several of them and uses several different fallacies in order to make her point to argue against the idea of going outside. I'm just going to skip all of that and not pretend I'm highbrow because I'm very... Very, very well learned and, and, and familiar with this kind of stuff. That's why I had to look it up. But no, I'm just going to go ahead and use an analogy, which is my personal preferred method of doing these things. Driving. You, you ever drive a car? I mean, I have. I've been driving since I was like 14. Um, I Driving, right. So you go, you drive around. Do you know driving is dangerous? Really, really dangerous. Driving is one of the most deadly, serious, and dangerous things you will do every day of your life. Now, how many of you have driven without any serious issue? Unfortunately, I cannot raise my hand on this one because I have had... Uh, actually, no, I'm going to take that back. I'm going to go and raise my hand on that. I don't think getting run over by a car counts. I wasn't driving at the time, so... I have lived my whole life driving since I was 14. Uh... And no big issues. That's because as long as you're very careful, careful, very cautious, and are paying attention. In other words, the reason I say that whole deadly serious thing is not to scare you. It's to impress upon you how much you need to do a good job and treat it seriously. I've actually taught a few kids who are going into that, you know, the range of being capable of learning how to drive that exact lesson. Just treat it seriously because it is I'm not trying to scare you. Contrast to us with Gothel. The world out there is horrible. But she's saying that because that means you should never... Do... In other words, to just fulfill the analogy, by Gothel's reasoning, you should never go driving. You could probably understand why I look at this and raise my eyebrow. Yes, by the way, it is possible to have a horrible thing happen to you while you're driving through no fault of your own, but that's also true of everything ever. You could just be walking around down the street one day, and a lightning bolt can hit you. Happened to a friend of mine. He died. I'm not joking. You could... He had a watch on, and... At, well, this is what I was told. Obviously, I wasn't even allowed to see the body. But, uh, yeah, he had a watch on. And apparently, that was enough. Because he had a watch on in his hand, in his pocket, and that was just... Yeah. So, does that mean... I should never go outside when there's a thunderstorm going on. Do you see my point? Gothel's overall approach is interesting, too, because then we immediately segue into Flynn. <laughs> Flynn is, of course, a dick who is not a good person. Okay, cool. Um, he betrays them. I found myself wondering if they were willing to be cool if he hadn't betrayed them. 
You'll notice that towards the end of the film, almost one of the last scenes, when he escapes effortlessly, I might add, from the guards who are escorting him and runs over to grab, grab one of the Stabbingtons, he's like, where is she? What happened? Oh, we don't know. The old mother latest to us. Like, I'm, j I'm just kind of idly curious if, if they would have been decent partners if not for the fact that Flynn decided to be a selfish git. I don't know. I'm actually curious on that. But either way, he does not start off as a good person. This, of course, leads quickly to the introduction of Maximus, who is briefing the horses. That's actually a weird scene to call out, but I do so because it's very necessary to get across the idea to the audience very quickly and very efficiently that this horse is intelligent and can communicate. Now, we will see many examples of that, but getting that up right up front is a good thing, because now we are like, okay, got it. The horse is an animal companion. Disney princess, right? I mean, she's actually got the chameleon, but Maximus in many ways qualifies in the same manner as the usual animal companion does. Anyways, so Rapunzel is really adorable. <laughs> I, like I said, there's a lot of scenes which I just don't have much to say on. They're very well constructed. They're very well storyboarded. The animation is excellent. The style is excellent. It makes me laugh. You know, pong, and then she goes and she hides. And she scooches forward. She's so cute. It's so adorable. Um, she also checks his teeth to see if he's fanged, because that's a good measure of whether a person's good or not. But then again, given the total lack of experience, it's not really something I blame her for. Then, this is funny, Gothel... Gothel, this is when we, we... If we didn't already know, based on the whole child kidnapping thing that we saw in the intro. Oh, yeah, by the way, once... I, I forgot to mention this. This is, like, the third film I've covered this year where the narration is completely unnecessary. If you just ejected the narration from the intro, I actually think it would make it better. Seriously, just mentally do that for a second. Watch watch the intro. The sun drop that falls, hits the flower. Old woman spots it. Oh. Then later we see her. She, she sings to it. She becomes youthful. But then we've cut to far more dim, uh, desaturated scene. We've got the, the people gathered around and very obviously pregnant woman. A, a, like, ridiculously pregnant woman. Everyone looks dour. Then we see the ships go out. And then we see her interacting with the flower again. And then she rushes off. But as she does so, she opens off the, the, the covering she's made. And the soldiers find it. They brew the thing. They give it to the girl. You could see how the, sh the movie itself does all the exposition necessary. The narration could just be ejected, and nothing would be worse for it. I'm just pointing this out because, and I feel like I've said this in the future now at this point. What, what other film was that? I think it was Nightmare Before Christmas. I mean, there's some other film that I have covered from my perspective that's coming out after this, where I once again have to point out that narration's good when you use it well. Apocalypse Now. But narration for narration's sake actually irritates me, and this film is a very good example. It's probably one of the only things I would ding this film for. So, that then leads us back to the present, where she's like, okay, I'm going I'm to prove that I'm this person, I'm, I'm going to prove to my parent that I am competent, and I'm responsible, and I can handle myself. Gothel slams down hard. Also, she says something that amuses me. I hate to leave after a fight, especially when I've done absolutely nothing wrong. I wanted to write down at least one example of that abuse thing I wanted to talk about. There's just something... I don't know, maybe it's just because I have been through that, but that pisses me off so badly. Just watching that happening to someone else just kind of makes the talons come out. You know what I mean? And by talons, I, of course, mean claw. Talons are down there. Anyways... <clears throat> 
So Rapunzel's adorable. We have the interrogation. It's very cute. A lot of reveals. She promises. And, of course, she keeps her promises. Good girl. He tries to seduce her twice. Both times it fails miserably. I have to admit, I love that. But this is also a good time to mention something. See, when they were designing Flynn, they actually got gathered together a bunch of people uh, who were interested in men. And were like, all right, listen. What's the ideal man? Physically. Like, what's the hottest guy you can picture? And so they pulled out, they, they, they got names and they pulled out pictures and they basically composited them and composited them and composited them and they kept doing sketches and refining it until they had what they, what they believed by consensus was the most physically attractive man that they could manage with the sample size they were working with. That's Flynn. I actually find that rather amusing, personally, that that was their approach, especially since his overall point in the story is to be the damsel in distress. I mean, it makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he tries seducing her. That fails miserably. We have the flip-flop montage where she's... It, it, it's the best scene of the whole film. This is wonderful. This is awful. I'm never going back. I should go back immediately. Just, it, it's... I, I can't do it enough justice. Unfortunately, it was kind of spoiled for me because the scene is basically repeated in Kingdom Hearts 3. And I obviously played that a while ago. Uh... I also like the nose gag. Oh, come on, they're just being mean at this point. Like I said, this is a comedy. Uh, the ruffians are cool. There's the dream sequence. We see the Cupid going by. Ha, ha, ha. You, what's your dream? Uh, no, I'm, I'm not singing. Everyone points their knives at him. Okay, I'll tell you my dream. <laughs> just the, the sense of comedic timing. I hate to keep pointing that out. I've actually analyzed comedy in several other films this year. Uh, including some that are coming out after this. I do things out of order. What do you want from me? I do things in, in an order that makes sense from a production perspective, so forgive me for bouncing around on the timeline a little bit. It's not my fault. I'm a time lord, okay? It's just who I am. But what really matters is that we find out that Flynn's dream is to retire and be alone, but rich. That dream does kind of suck, if I'm just being honest. But mostly because what that... Well, that's not actually his dream, is it? We actually find out his real dream. No, I don't mean Rapunzel. <sighs> Later on in the film, he talks about Flynn. No, the actual Flynn, not himself. He's Eugene. So Eugene talks about Flynn. This is... <sighs> this is interesting, because Flynn was not a thief. He was just rich. But that's how it works, isn't it? Let me put this into a little bit of perspective, both in-universe and out, okay? Bear with me, because I think this is important enough to discuss. And I have precious little to discuss in this film, so whatever, right? I want you to imagine that there's an old farmer. Poor. Remove old. There's a farmer and the farmer's wife. They're relatively poor, but they're happy. Farmer's wife gets sick in labor. What happens? I'll just spoil it for you. She dies. You know why? Because they didn't have the resources, access, availability, whatever you want to call it, they did not have what was necessary to fix the tire, which is an analogy I've been using a lot lately. I suppose I have to explain that really quick. Let's say you're driving. I love my driving analogies, right? And let's say you're driving and your car, you, you, your, your tire pops or is in the process of dying. 
what do you do? Well, you pop out, you get the spare out of your trunk, you put it on it, and then you just keep going, right? What if you don't have the spare? Because that spare costs money. Now, I do have a spare. I actually, every time I get, I replace my tires, I actually buy a fifth tire of the same style and put it into my trunk immediately. Because of course I do. Because I can afford that. I know what it's like to not be able to afford that. And you see where I'm going with this. Having access to that is in itself a form of a luxury. Having the, let's just call it what it is, power to be able to fix that tire is critical. Because if you don't have that spare tire, well, what do you do? Well, then you cope with it as best you can. Maybe you have one of those little donut tires that lasts for like 10 miles. Maybe you don't have the money for new tires in general, so you just get the thing towed and then leave it to rot in your yard. Maybe you don't even have the money or the phone for a tow, so you literally abandon it on the spot. I've done that before. Not proud of that, by the way. I had to just straight up abandon the car, get out of the car, and walk. Before I'd even finished crossing the bridge, they'd already stopped in order to tow the sucker and drag it off to the, to the yard to be impounded. And I went by, on foot, and did the paperwork and said, yep, this is me, and cleared everything. But that was all I could do. I had no power to be able to do anything about it. The king and queen had the power to do something about that illness. This leads me neatly to Eugene. Eugene and his stories of Flynn. Flynn had the power to go on adventures. He had the access. He had the resources. He didn't have to worry about working eight hours a day, seven days a week, in order just to make ends meet. He could go out and do things because he had that availability. We see this constantly, not just in fiction, but in real life. I actually consider myself very fortunate when I was a child. Why? Because my mother was a pharmacist. And she made good money. And you know what that meant? That meant, while I wasn't exactly living the high life, I had access. I could fix the tire. I could try new things. Why do you think I had an NES and an SNES and a PC that had video games on it? Why do you think my mother and I could go to movies every single week in the theaters? I've mentioned that before. No, I mentioned that during Nightmare Before Christmas, which is happening much later in this year. Timelines, right? That all came about because of that access. And in real life, access really, 95% of access can be boiled down to money. This then makes a lot of human society make a lot more sense across all history, really. You have more, so you can do more. You ever heard of the term, the rich get richer? There's actually a very basic mathematical reason for that, and I just told you it. They have the ability to do more with their money. You could actually make the same money they do if you had the initial capital in order to use it the way they do. You don't, so you don't. So it makes perfect sense for a kid like Eugene who just wants to live life and have adventures and do things to want money. And then when he gives his dream, he says, that's my big dream, is money. But it's not. Money is the tool. Money is the access. Money is the power. Means, not ends. Thus, as Eugene shows, and this is part of why he is not actually that horrible person, he doesn't really want the money. He wants the things that the money bring. He gets this at the end of the film. He basically becomes the prince. And he joins the royal family. And guess what that means? Access, availability, money, power. Wanting more power is a natural human thing. It does not make you evil 
or wrong. It's just, it's usually portrayed as evil is wrong because most of the time the villains want more power too. There's also degrees of extreme here. You notice Flynn, excuse me, Eugene, did not want to be, <laughs> I shall rule on high, a sultan! No, he didn't want that. He just wanted, well, to do the things he actually wanted to go do. And that's acceptable. It's normal. It's human. <sighs> So, they escape. I mentioned the low magic thing already, so I don't need to mention that. Although, the low magic thing is important, because when he gets that cut, and it's healed later, this helps to explain why he freaks out so badly when the cut is healed. Also, i got to be honest, when I think of the sun, I don't really associate it with healing powers. I associate it with a deadly laser, but that's neither here nor there. Although, funny fact, I was actually thinking about that. I think it doesn't restore youth at all. I think it's just purely healing. It's healing... Uh, <sighs> Wow, we're going to go into the weeds on this one, aren't we? Whatever, I don't have much to talk about anyways, as I mentioned before. So why not healing magic, okay? How does healing magic work? Don't say it heals someone. That, that doesn't actually answer the question. So healing magic accelerates the body's own innate built-in ability to heal, okay? Or actively replaces existing damaged tissue and material with new material, basically a form of creation. Or, this is my personal favorite, Restoration, as in restoring it to a previous state. Basically, rewinding the clock a little. And you see now why I relate this to de-aging. Because it is very clear, based on the way it's presented in the film, that her, he her healing is restorative. And thus it restores her youth and it restores her. One interesting thing, though. This also lines up with how Gothel is presented. If you pay attention throughout this film, which occurs over the course of like two days... She gets visibly, noticeably more aged just over two days of not having the healing power done to her. Now that makes sense, because even though it's restoring her, it need, it, she's still actually that old, so her body's still falling apart at such a rate, which means that she is... Well, okay, actually, no, I take that back. That doesn't make sense at all. It makes sense from a generic magical perspective rather than a literal application perspective. So let me redo my sentence there. <laughs> It makes sense from a generic magical perspective rather than a restorative perspective because what's happening is she's effectively holding off aging, just like that terrible, terrible dam. Which, by the way, king and queen, you're supposed to be wise and great rulers. Huh? Maybe you should spend a little less money on the yearly festival and a little less money on the ridiculous amount of soldiers you have. Like, in just this huge army. And maybe you should spend just a little bit on public works, like making the dam actually worth a dam. Anyways. It's holding back age, and it's clear, based on how it's presented, that the older she gets, the more frequent she needs those restorative things in order to bring her back to her beloved youth. Oh yeah, by the way, do you think she is afraid of dying? Or do you think she is chasing her own vanity? It could also be both. So... The dam. I already mentioned the dam. Uh, by the way, I have to comment on the fact that they give Maximus a Gladius. That was cute, guys. Very good. Um, uh, accelerated aging. Maxim, who was a dog. They bond with him. He's cool. They get the braiding. The festival is fun. The festival is exactly what a festival should be. Music, fun, shared. So, I'm with that. I'm with that whole section. Uh, things are going well, which means this is time for things to go badly. That's the pattern. <sighs> 
he mentions to her, she mentions to him, what if what I dream is not everything I dreamed it to be? And his response is, uh, well, then you get to find a new dream. That's a good answer. No, really, that is actually a good answer. Now, it turns out her dream was everything she wanted it to be, but that is a surprisingly adult approach to that. Because if you really, really want something and then it's you know, it's unsatisfying, there's nothing wrong with feeling unsatisfied by that, but you shouldn't let that crush you. You should accept that, embrace that, and then move on from it and find something new. Now, I, I could make a joke here about Star Wars or Mass Effect or whatever you want, but in real-life terms, that is good advice within reason. This also reminds me of Frozen. See... Frozen, uh, <laughs> Frozen and uh, Tangled both do the same thing. They take one step outside of the let's call it the comfort zone for the for Disney films. For in Frozen's case, I'm not actually going to say what it is, but if you've seen the film, you know what I'm referring to. And in this film's case, it's the fact you know it's the, it's the relationship between Rapunzel and Flynn and the juxtaposition thereof. Juxtaposition the wrong word. The reversing. Reversing of roles. There we go. That's what I'm trying to talk about. It's only the one step out, but I do personally think that, in addition to all the work that was done to make the films you know, really, really good, I do think that slight variance was substantial enough to be at least part of the reason why both films were as well-received as they were. You'll notice, by the way, that one of my favorite films of all time, Zootopia, actually did several steps outside of the comfort zone. Anywho, <clears throat> so, uh, they trick him, and she takes him back. Maximus figures out something's wrong, and immediately, you know, gets the people and starts to help. And I kind of like that, by the way. There's actually a decent amount of rapport that is built between uh, fl between Eugene and Maximus over the middle part of the film. It it's, it's actually pretty decent. It's a little rushed, but that's okay. It's a side thing, and you don't need to push that too fast. Or, excuse me, too hard. So the speed of it doesn't bother me as much as it otherwise would. Such that by the time when he is shoutedly, you know, being like, oh my god, Rapunzel, no! Maximus is like, okay, something's up, and I need to try and help fix this. And then they do the escape sequence, which is great. <sighs> um, big escape is, of course, a big adventure, which, of course, contrasts Gothel, as I already mentioned. They're going to go hang him, by the way. Uh, this also then leads to the big confrontation with Gothel, who is, of course, portrayed exactly as evilly as she is. By the way, I, I know that they kind of misshow this, but it kind of looks like she stabs him in the kidney when she gets him with the dagger. No blood on the dagger. Want to want to keep that rating. <clears throat> One of the things I do like about this film a lot is that both Flynn and Rapunzel. I keep calling them both Eugene and Rapunzel sacrifice in order to defeat the villain. You caught that, right? Eugene obviously rushes back to help her, but the point is, he fails. She stabs him. He he is he is on death's doorstep. This is why her sacrifice is the first one. I promise I will not try to escape you if you help let me heal him. So that's her sacrifice. Sacrificing her life in order to save his, just in order to make sure that he survives. He then says something to her. He doesn't say it the way I would, but what he says is what I feel and what I believe very strongly. Survival is insufficient. She would sacrifice her ability to live in exchange for his ability to keep breathing. 
So he then sacrifices his ability to keep breathing in order to save her life and thus defeat Gothel. It's a good touch, and I like that both of them had to do it to make it happen. I know I've called him a damsel in distress, and Lord knows this kind of qualifies, but that sort of teamwork thing works better for me than just one person being the, the hero or the heroine and saving the other one. Good stuff. Funny little tidbit. Gothel ages drastically, Indiana Jones reference here, and as she plummets out the window, the sun is shining on her. Like, you can see it peeking out as she plummets to her death. Hmm. So then the film ends, right? That's the end. We're good. We're done. No, of course we've got to have a happy ending. I like happy endings. I do. What's with the healing tears? I know, I know. It's a reference to the fairy tale, but come on. She has healing tears? That's horrible. <laughs> and I feel like it's legitimately just a little bit cheap here. You know what I would have liked a little bit better? He is injured and wounded. But she, thanks to her efforts and to the efforts of the others who have been helping him get this far, managed to get him to an honest-to-goodness doctor, and he starts to recover the normal way. And then, because of the efforts of everyone involved, he is saved, she is rescued, they go home, and they get to be part of the family. That's how I would have done that. Just, just a light, slight rewrite there. It's a good death scene, though, other than the fact that it's undone. By the way, did you notice the, the parents, the king and queen, don't say a single line of dialogue the whole film? It's actually good. It's well done. It's just interesting to think about. So the film ends, happily ever after. The end. This was the first time I've ever seen this film. Not really on purpose. As I've mentioned, I just kind of... Sometimes I bounce over a particular film, usually because I don't have anyone to see it with. I, I really, really don't like going to the theaters alone, so I don't. <laughs> um, and so if I don't have someone to see it with or they're otherwise occupied, then I don't see a film. And that's exactly what happened here. I just kind of skipped over it by accident. This was good. I don't want to compare it to Frozen directly, but I can see why both films together managed to restore, you know, Disney confidence and give us films like, let's just go down the list here, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, Big Hero 6, Zootopia, Moana, Wreck-It Ralph 2, and Frozen 2. That's a pretty good roster right there. And, funnily enough, I do think it took both together to really make that work. And since Frozen wouldn't have even happened if not for Tangled, think of that what you will. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time. Chukru.